But it is our JLA family. I am Angela Birdsong, your conversation piece host on Radio Justice LA Morning Wake Up Call at RadioJustice.org, where something new or unusual to talk about for stimulating conversation for you on the bus, train, plane, or simply at the water cooler or in Cubicle Nation. Today on Conversation Piece, meet Dr. Scott Brown, Associate Professor of African American Studies and History at the University of California, Los Angeles, yes, UCLA, author and music historian who is not your ordinary history professor, but is a funk fanatic musician who will connect the Black Freedom Movement to the sociology of music, particularly funk music, yes. This is an African-American studies lesson. Welcome to Conversation Peace. Dr. Scott Brown, music expert and African-American studies historian. Welcome to Conversation Piece. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to finally have you here. Oh, my goodness. I The first time I met you was several years ago. Yes. At the, I think it's called the W Hotel. It was the Westwood mm-hmm. Marquee at mm-hmm. one point, right, right there in Westwood. Yes. And I can't remember what event I was there for. I don't know if you even recall, but it was, it was a, you know, it was a, a weekday happy hour type of setting or what have you. And I remember Anthony Hamilton and his wife were checking into the hotel. Mm -hmm. And you and I were standing in front of the hotel and just had a brief conversation. I remember you just saying your last name was Birdsong. And that pretty much put you in a kind of royal family musically for me, since uh, your father's a big... Uh, time songwriter that I've always revered as well. So that was it. You checked the box right there. So I'm glad we stayed in touch and glad yes. to be here with you today. Yes, yes. What it is? What what it is? Right, Dad's first album. That and that's that. And that's why I say what it is. RGLA family. And also there was a a documentary that my sister Michelle and I were watching. They call me Morgan. And mm-hmm. in that documentary when they were those jazz cats, when they would get together as musicians, they would come in and they said, what it is, man. I gotta, I gotta start using that. Gotta keep that. Right. Oh, we're gonna have a good conversation today. Oh my goodness. Cause you know, oh, you guys uh, conversation piece audience, this man right here, when we say he's a music historian, a music expert, he knows the deep crevices, crevices of music to the gargantua, um structures of it and i'm so looking forward to us talking about all of this connection of the juxtaposition of freedom in music and freedom and black power and let's start with 
let's start with with the black power because sure. you have written extensively mm-hmm. about the the African studies movement, the the black studies move, movement, yes. the Black Panther Party movement, mm-hmm. us organization. How is those writings, your research about black revolution, black unity, black freedom, the Black Panther Party and the us organization conflict, describe how this helped develop the sociology of music that was being developed at that time. Well, you know, in the 1990s, when I started to really study heavily African-American history, black history, I realized that so many of the local elders who had the story, the, the griots, if you will, who told the story of black power, many of them were veterans of the movement. And so I was in my hometown, Rochester, New York, the bookstore there was run by a former member of the US organization. His name is Gerald Chaka. The bookstore was called Kitabu Kingdom. And that really set me off on a journey of meeting an elder who challenged me to study. And in those studies, I was very interested in doing research on this group called US that was the group that brought us Kwanzaa and really pushed the whole engagement with African languages and Kiswahili and all these kinds of things. I had no idea when I got into this that there was any conflict among different black organizations or that there were different ideological schisms. This is before I even went to graduate school. But I knew that there was a story there. And so I stuck with it once I decided to go to graduate school. The music part of it came from... You've heard of an artist, I'm sure, named M. Tume. Yes. All right. So the US organization uh, chairman is uh, Maulana Karenga. And lots of talented folks that were in the organization that people don't know about because most people think about the leader above and beyond the rank and file members, which is something I'm always kind of interested in, the everyday folks both in music groups as well as in social and political movements. So M. Tume ended up becoming this big songwriter uh, with Reggie Lucas and, you know, wrote The Cold Closer I Get to You, uh, then had this great solo career, Juicy, all of that. And I had no idea that the M. Tume that I was reading about in the notes from my studies was a musician. So when I put the two together, it was really out of this thinking about what is cultural nationalism that the US organization is talking about and where does music fit in. And in my dialogue with him, Tume, he said something that really stuck with me that ignited my uh, interest in making these connections. He said, the highest form of art is intellect and the highest form of intellect is art. You can't separate the two in the way that we typically do when we think about what comes out of our soul and our mind and our hearts and into the world. So once I started going down that path, I started to make less and less of a dichotomy between art, music, and social and political movements. So when I wrote the book on the US organization, I have a lengthy discussion about musicians like Herbie Hancock, who was influenced by the cultural nationalist ideology and for a while used the name Mwandishi. Uh, and all of the Swahili names and the use of the Nguzo Saba. I talk about that. I talk about 
uh, poets like Amiri Baraka, Carolyn Rogers, and others who embrace the aspects of this black cultural nationalist philosophy. So I started gesturing in a direction toward music, even on the first uh, research project that I did on black power, because I started to become aware that the artists are just as important as revolutionaries, as you know, people who are in the streets, and many of them are both in the streets and making art. So that's how I got there. That part to me is simply amazing because as consumers of music, we only listen yeah. to it. And as beneficiaries of the black movement, we appreciate those historical figures for the work that they have done, opening doors and the different social injustice platforms that still occurring today that, that, that they have done. But on the music part, we overlook all of that. Yes, the, the whole The whole tie-in. We, we understand from the civil rights movement how some of those church songs mm -hmm. kept them girded up and and kept them encouraged and it was was the the perfect um hand and glove fit yes for you know for those marches right for civil rights there's a even the term soul you know it has a kind of resonance because of uh, our references to the soul in sacred worship right so this transcendent part of who we are that goes far beyond the physical the idea of something that feeds us and ties us to the creator all of that even in a secular form they they picked the word soul in part because it was doing a lot of the things that the spiritual traditional spiritual songs would do in a different context and in your so in your in your book discourse on Africana studies, the beginning of the Black Study movement. You know, I I went to school in the eighties, and my degree is in Afro American studies from UCLA. All right. And I never ever thought about <laughs> the the onset of that I didn't even think that it was even moving I just took for granted that's always sure. been a major right? right and of course it hasn't when I look in your book but I didn't know while that was being developed music was being developed right along with it that um, music is the reflection of the environment of the social environment, and as I as I as that's ringing in my head, and I'm um, perusing. I, I wish I could have read your books. I, I really, really, really wish I could have read them before before the, this interview, especially fighting for us uh, as you went into the the the, the artist the mu the musician portion of the book. Um, but I, I it keeps ringing in my head. What was happening with the music as the black studies movement was going on what was the music that those students were listening to as they were going and saying we need to have a black college 
within this white college? I just keep thinking, what was the backdrop? Sure. Well, you know, soul music and uh, sort of the beginnings of, of, of funk music provided, I think, a real, uh, not just response to student movements, but also ideas. So if you take, for instance, wherever that point is where most people of African ancestry in the U.S. stop using the term Negro and start using the term black, somewhere in there we have to bring up James Brown, say it loud. So not just as a reflection of that change, but also as capacity to create a positive aesthetic to a term that certain generations, certain segments of the community, you know, resisted for lots of different reasons. So the art is always a part of it. It's a reflexive kind of thing. It's not necessarily just a reflection, and and it also can inspire different types of forms of resistance as well. So James Brown, a lot of people listening to uh, the the band, one of the most important bands in, in funk, Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, there's lots of social commentary in the music that can provide a soundtrack that can give you a sense for why you should fight and also what you're fighting for. Okay, on that note, let's take a break. All right, let's do it. <laughs> and we'll come back and talk about what are we fighting for and what are we singing about as we're fighting, fighting for it. I am your host, Angela Birdsong, with guest Dr. Scott Brown, who is bringing the funk to Conversation Peace. And we'll be right back after sounds from the Funkology Labs of Scott Tronics. Every day she makes me feel like I'm the last man on the earth. And every Music pulls on our experiential life track. You hear a song and it takes you back. And welcome back to Conversation Peace. I am your host, Angela Birdsong, with Dr. Scott Brown, music expert and historian. Before we went to break, you were talking about how music has a social commentary in it with James Brown. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Sure. And he's using, I, I don't know if this is the first song that that made the airwaves where the you know where the race black is being said in a song and now we have students who want to study study themselves they want to study black black studies that covers right. so many different things that, that you know urban economics 
um, black literature, uh, black music, yeah. black arts, black mm-hmm. theater, all, all, all of these different um, black sociology right. is, is all in there. Because whenever, you know, because that's what my degree is in. So people always ask, well, what did you study? <laughs> it's like, right. yeah. And it's like, oh, there's and so many different, you know, things within that major. Sure. It's an interdisciplinary discipline. So you can cover so many aspects of black life. Now, the James Brown song, I don't know if it was the first, but it was certainly one of the most popular and uh, influential and representative of this kind of uh, assertiveness. And also, I mean, if I had to talk about the leanings, because I don't think the the distance between the two of that far as we talk about the civil rights movement, and the black power movement, it's not like there's this line that you can draw that says one is here and one is the other. If there is a difference in tendency, a lot of the discussion, the publications and the analysis by people inspired by the call to black power thought about black folks as the primary audience. So much less interested in demonstrating worthiness in a wider racist world but more interested in inspiring black folks to know who they are uh who we are to know where we came from what are our possibilities what are our contradictions so that shift is a a really important one in james brown When he says, say it loud, I mean, who's he talking to? He's talking to black folks. So that's probably representative of it. The other dimension of it, I think, that speaks to to music, the Black Studies intervention in the American Academy was one in which student activists who fought for it wanted to have a discipline that didn't function like English, history, political science, the tendency in all these academic disciplines is toward a detachment from a kind of emotional and political investment in one's research. So that notion of objectivity, the idea being that detachment, in order to get a clear analysis, your best strategy is to distance your own commitments from the subject matter and the conclusions you draw from it. Black Studies argues for something different at that time, and that is something that's self-consciously political, interested in black freedom or liberation, in all the different variety of ways that people conceptualize what freedom is. But that relationship between knowledge production, cultural production, and the life chances and circumstances not just for black people in the broadest sense, but also in the community where those departments and institutions are. That was the spirit of it. So part of my work on black studies in the book, Discourse in Africana Studies, takes me back to that earlier spirit of black studies that uh, has been marginalized because social movements open up doors and over time they become really a part of the system. And so there's a kind of professionalism that actually mirrors a lot of what the students were fighting against in terms of this idea of academics talking mostly to each other 
and not really being grounded in the community. So that's why I wrote that book. And it's a book of writings by my mentor, uh, Dr. James Turner, uh, founder of Africana Studies. I, at Cornell University, I, um, I tend to use that spirit to think about how do we deal with music from a black studies perspective. And that's where I pull from my own experience growing up, playing in bands as a youngster, and also my ideas about black studies. So if I had to differentiate what would be special about a black studies analysis of music, I think we would ask questions about power. We would ask questions about its distribution. We would ask questions about the music as a resource. So if we think about, in the words of uh, Dick Griffey, who started Solar Records, he said, you know, African countries have resources like oil, like diamonds, precious metals. Africans in the U.S. and in the diaspora, one powerful resource we have is our culture. And just like oil that's extracted from Nigeria that makes the world prosperous and makes the world run, so does this resource, black music, that circulates everywhere. It makes lots of folks wealthy and the communities that create it, the people that create it, don't benefit to the same extent that other communities and institutions do. So the decolonization of black music, I see is part of the project of a black studies analysis of music. So if I'm looking at Kendrick Lamar, I'm not just interested in analyzing his lyrics. I'm also interested in the phenomenal work that he's doing here in Los Angeles. And then I'm thinking as an institution, how do we intervene? How do we collaborate? How do we build? I'm interested in chaos and Lemur Park. I'm interested in these. That's a, from my perspective, and this is just one position. But if you're asking about the way, at least that I'm tying these things in, that's how they get me to where I stand now. So therefore, we lost the original spirit of black studies, and we lost the spirit of that musical resource of our culture. Well, I think that... Because we're taking it for granted. Sure. I, well, you know, I'm not so sure that we ever really had um, any symmetry in terms of the creative output of our art, our music, and control over it, and also the wealth. That's That seems to be a long-term project, both long-term in terms of the history behind us and uh, as much of a hurdle today as it was uh, decades ago. But there are, some, there are some moments of opportunity that are going on here. But the spirit of black studies that you spoke of that we've lost, uh, I wouldn't say we've completely lost it, but I think that it's not the dominant sensibility. And whenever you have a social movement, social movements open doors. But they also can become absorbed. The one thing that's so powerful about the United States is its capacity to absorb, package, and commodify and sell a lot of the language and logic of social and political movements. So you can have a something that gets co-opted 
in real time because of the ability to sell it, capture its themes, market, all these kinds of things. That's why people now are talking about cultural appropriation as an issue. It's not new, but um, that's part of what happens to the Black Studies movement. So over time, you have professionals who have advanced degrees, like I did at Cornell, and a job opportunity can be in a Black Studies department, and that department may not have any real connection to that earlier social movement vision. So it takes a lot of reflection and constant dialogue about who we are and what we're doing to get back to, I think, what the original mission was. Now, I know we've gone a a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. And we moved away from funk. (laughs) Well, actually, that's a good one. I think we're getting there. We're getting getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Okay, right, right. The sociology Mm -hmm. of funk. Yes. And... How did you start to get into the? I know you're a bass player, right? From from upstate New York, right? Close to Ohio, because that's where you said is the hotbed of funk, right? And funk is being developed at the same time as the Black Studies is being developed as the well, Black Movement. Yeah, or I see where, what you where, mean. Where, where, where where is this coming in? Well, this is coming in where the kind of questions that I'm asking about funk are the questions that grow out of a black study sensibility. That's where that comes from. So when I deal with funk music, I'm asking questions about the artists. Who are the local teachers? Where did they go to school? How does music function as a social currency that locks together different institutions? How did the rec centers put up mobile stages for local bands to perform? So that's, it's not so much to say that the Black Studies Movement and funk, you know, are part and parcel. It's more, how do we understand funk from a Black Studies perspective? And what kinds of questions are we asking about it? There's a lot, funk is so vast in its visual imagery, in its lyrical creativity, from Sly and the Family Stone to... Betty Davis, to Parliament Funkadelic, to Cameo, to all these groups. If you just look at the album covers alone, you're going to take yourself on a visual ride. So given that vastness, I, I come to it from a question around funk in relation to community. So funk is a soundtrack for a period of time when black urban communities had access to relatively good wage working class jobs. So when you go back and interview many of the artists, particularly those who came to the fore in the mid seventies, many of them had came out of one income families, but that income was enough to buy an instrument. You know what I mean? Um, pay for students to have lessons, extracurricular activities. A lot of the women in the story, even though the women are not necessarily large proportions in terms of numbers of band members, moms, aunties, they're the band managers, they're coordinating the outfits, they're transporting kids back and forth in the context of 
any given city where there are local bands. So that's sort of where, and I, as a kid in Rochester, New York, I found my options around recreation uh, to be really ones that were pulled by this magnetic force of local bands and local celebrity. I mean, I have, you know, there were bands in Rochester where I grew up, like Chocolate City was the name of one. Another one had a record deal called the Voltage Brothers. They were absolute superstars in my world. And so that's really what I seek to capture in my research on funk, which I believe is a black studies grounded analysis. I know that's a little complicated, but that's where it all comes mm -hmm. together. And, and this is the next project that you're working on, your next yes. book project. Yes. Tell us about that. That book is a case study of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Dayton, Ohio had for its size the largest per capita number of funk or, or bands. Uh, funk is much more band driven, uh, whereas R&B and even a lot of soul is much more geared toward the vocalists. For the, and, and of course, there are exceptions to this tendency. But I look at Dayton, Ohio, because groups like the Ohio Players, Slave, Lakeside, Heat Wave, Roger Troutman and Zapp from Hamilton, who uh, embraced Dayton, um, Junie Morrison, Steve Arrington's Hall of Fame. All these groups come out of this. Sun is another group that's uh, from Dayton. All these groups come from this city, and I wanted to understand what were the real forces that made it possible for all these groups to come out of that town. And was I telling a story that's sort of an exceptionalist story of Dayton, Ohio? Or is Dayton really just shining a light on what's happening all over the country? Those are the questions I wanted to look at. Okay, we're going to get more into into that with your project. And we got to talk about Tales from the Tour Bus <laughs> yes. and the song that we just heard, Last okay. Man. Right, okay. right, sure. right. I am Angela Birdsong, and you're listening to Conversation Piece on RadioJustice.org. More with guest Dr. Scott Brown. We'll be back. I thought of this. As I passed in the hallway and you looked up while drying off after stepping out of your Sunday shower. In a lover's eye, one can see something, perhaps a glint of the potent beauty we all long to be when we get a lead cast our fate welcome back to conversation piece on rjla i am your host angela birdsong and we are keeping the funk alive with dr scott brown dr scott we were talking about your project tell me about last man your music okay. the song well you know it's interesting because i've been working on this book on funk for last um, I'm, <laughs> it's been about 12 years or so, maybe longer, uh, that I've been working on it. And I've done about 150 oral history interviews for the book. Um, everything from the artists, music teachers, 
family members, business owners, every facet of this community in which music uh, circulated that I want to write about. One benefit of that is I've been able to talk to a lot of artists. I've also done a number of television music documentary shows like Unsung on TV One, uh, like Tales from the Tour Bus on Cinemax. When he says Tales from the Tour Bus on Cinemax, there is an animation made of Dr. Brown <laughs> on here. And, and it's he's on episodes with Bootsy Collins and with James Brown. Yes, those At, two episodes. Yes. This, this is a um, documentary series done by Mike Judge, who did Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill. So he's a, what he's done, I think the first season dealt with country artists. This season de- deals with funk artists. So uh, the whole series is animated, and it's it, it makes for, I think, some really creative kind of illustrations of music history that I'm happy to be a part of. I also did on VH1, Finding the Funk, which is a great documentary done by music historian, one one of the really important ones, Nelson George. So hearing all these stories triggered in me a desire to continue to write and play music myself. And I kind of went to, I think, an informal university of music studies by interviewing all these artists 150 yeah it, it you know and so that kind of has also been part of the dialogue so i would meet artists and they know that i play and they say hey man well, why aren't you putting any music out you know and especially what's um, your answer fear um fear i think because i was also conditioned by this idea that you separate the two right if you're an intellectual you're a writer. You write books and articles and you do public speaking. If you're an artist, you're supposed to be over here doing music. And so the idea of bringing the two together is actually right in line with what the original Black Studies mission was. So all these things have been like a 180 degree turn for me in that right. regard. I remember when I met with uh, James M. Tume when I was writing the book Fighting for Us. And, you know, he's been an important mentor to me as well. And he said, there's something else about you, man. I said, well, you know what? I used to play some of your music in high school. And he said, you know, why aren't you playing now? I said, well, I'm focusing mainly on the intellectual stuff. He said, you're making a big mistake. He said, never let your funk down. <laughs> because that gives you some place to go. Yes. So he said, you know, being an academic, that's like warfare. That's like battle. Right. Said, so most people spend their lives trying to find somewhere to go to get through this thing and you have it and you're not using it. So at that point, I really started to just challenge myself to do more little by little over time. Anybody that's been friends with me for a while now has had to endure countless demos and hey, check this out, listen to this, listen to that. And so that's been a a growth process for me along with the music study uh, that I'm doing. So we have Last Man, and you released it on your birthday. Yes. That song, Last Man, is a song that I co-wrote with the lead singer, Rick Robinson. Rick Robinson was the lead singer of a band that I was in in Rochester when I was like 15 years old. He And so part of my sensibility is like Rochester, this city that 
people don't really think of in a way maybe they think about Kodak when it was still around or something like that but it's it, it's a city like a lot of these cities that have lots of musicians in them it was a working class town etc so when thinking about that I'm always trying to find ways to pull on the experience that I've had and bring uh, people that I have exceptional talent uh, in the creative process that I'm engaged in now. So Rick Robinson is a singer. He and I wrote that song in a, he's a phenomenal vocalist and a brilliant songwriter in his own right. The guitarist is also from Rochester. His name is Rick Marcel. He's recorded with Cash Money Records. He's really the, the music behind, at least in the rhythm section, the guitar and bass on a lot of those hits uh, like Slow Motion and Party Like a Rockstar. He's from Rochester. He was also in the band that I was in called Radiance. And the rapper, Breon Bain, who does the uh, rap in the song, he's a professor at UCLA, major artist, theatrical artist, uh, vocalist, rapper, just a multi-dimensional renaissance artist, and a profound activist around the anti-mass incarceration movement. He has a play that he does, a one-man show, lyrics from lockdown. And he actually finds ways to organize those who are incarcerated and even do theatrical productions with them, both in uh, while they're incarcerated and also getting them outside of prisons to perform. So just a tremendous person. The song is really a lot more than just a song about love between a man and a woman. It's also returning to my first love, uh, which is music uh, that, that makes me feel like I'm mm -hmm. the last man on the world, too. Right. And it, and it involves what this term that, that you have coined community genius. That's right. A lot of times when we think about our great artists like Prince, uh, like Stevie Wonder, like Ashaka Khan, we, we focus on their exceptional ability as, as individual artists, and that's very much something that can't be ignored. I'm not downplaying that, but there's also another story. There are people, there are music teachers, there are rec center staff people, there are all kinds of folk. If you read Shaka Khan's autobiography that she mentions that are part of her being cultivated as an artist. So as far as the members of the band that I was in, Radiance and Rochester, I have no problem admitting that I think I was the least talented in the group. Uh, I, I play bass okay. I got a few licks here and there, but there are some complete geniuses, musical geniuses in Rochester. Um, guitarists like Ronald Brown, bassists like Jeff Brown, Ronnie Dorsey, Tyrone Coley, all these are just, they're the kind of musicians that can hold their own anywhere in the world, but there's so many other intangible things that have to do with making a good song that have less to do with how fast you can run up and down the neck. It might be composition. So a lot of the skills that I learned as a professor and as a writer of books and articles, helped me with songwriting as well. So it's kind of negotiation of these two worlds that actually come together in this space. Right, storytelling. Um, I 
during my research about you, you went to go inter- interview Sugarfoot. Yes. And he asked you, did you have your bass? No, what, 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 no he asked you, were you a musician? Did you play right, anything? Right. You have an instrument because he was vetting you, basically, right? That's a very funny story <laughs> because Sugarfoot at that time uh, was... Okay, just, and, and, and who is Sugarfoot for our oh, audience to know? Oh, that's yeah. right, audience. You need to know this name. Leroy Sugarfoot Bonner, lead vocalist and guitarist extraordinaire with the Ohio Players. When you hear people in funk music say, ow, you hear that, ow. Sugarfoot single-handedly put that in our musical lexicon. So Sugarfoot from the Ohio Players, at the time he was actually recovering from a stroke, but uh, already getting ready to get back into playing, he wasn't happy with the idea of doing an interview with me. In fact, there were some older blues musicians who taught him, Sammy and Earl Reed, the Reed brothers. I was interviewing them, and they called up Sugarfoot and said, Sugar, you need to talk to this man. He came all the way here from California. So he says, all right. So I get to his house, and I walk down. He had a little studio in this area, and he says, before we start, let me ask a question. Do you play anything yourself? I said, uh, yes, sir. I actually uh, play the bass. He said, oh, you play the bass. Where is it? I said, actually, uh, it's in my car. Because at that time, I, I was hoping for the opportunity to play with some while I was doing research. So I brought my bass from California to Dayton. Go get it. I go get the bass. He says, plug it in. I said, okay, I plug it in. At this time, Sugarfoot had a stroke, so he didn't have the manual dexterity to play guitar anymore. But that quickly, he taught himself how to play keyboards. In fact, he made a joke and said, if I'd have known keyboards were this easy, I would have never picked up a damn guitar. That's, that's how <laughs> prolific of an artist he was. So Sugarfoot's sitting there, and he says, okay, can you play skin tight? So... I go into the skin tight. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, 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 boom. He says, can you play the bridge? So I go to the bridge. So then he says, okay. Keep practicing, boy. You might make you some money. Now we can do the interview. <laughs> get on that. Get get on it, man. Get yeah. on it. Get on it. And you got Last Man. So tell us what's next. How can we find Last Man? And how can we um, find discourse on Africana and Fighting for Us? Fighting for Us, you can find on Amazon. Uh, it's published by NYU Press. That's Fighting for Us. Maulana Karenga, the Us Organization of Black Cultural Nationalism. The second book, Discourse on Africana Studies, that book can be found um, online as well. It's published by Diasporic Africa Press. Uh, another fellow student of James Turner runs that publishing company, Kwesi uh, Kanadu, uh, an extraordinary not-for-profit press that has no problem writing about very important and neglected aspects of black life across the globe. Scott Tronics, that's my artist name, S-C-O-T-R-O-N-I-X-X, and you can get um, Last Man on Bandcamp, and it should be also appearing on Spotify and Apple Music and all those online places. I have a forthcoming album I'm putting out on Poet 
Kalamu Ya Salam. You might hear some tracks from that. Um, there's a song, I Thought of This. And I have a whole album done on Kalamu Ya Salam as well. And then I'll keep putting out singles as I go. They say it's a singles-driven market, so I just want to put out good songs, quality music that can inspire people. I really want to create a kind of music uh, that's in sync with the spirit of like an Earth, Wind, and Fire or Stevie Wonder, uh, music that get, helps get you through the day or Parliament Funkadelic. Everybody's got a little light under the sun, right? We need to be reminded of that as we keep hearing so many messages that push us toward materialism and sometimes even uh, destructive behavior. I want to at least have a counter to that. You're listening to Conversation Peace on Radio Justice Morning Wake Up Call. I'm Angela Birdsong, and we'll be back with more funk for you. Welcome back to Conversation Piece on RJLA. I'm your host, Angela Birdsong, and we got Scott Tronics, Dr. Scott Brown, in the house with us today. You yeah. are, I mean, oh my goodness, you, you do so much stuff. Yeah, I try to keep it together, uh, and I think having a kind of spiritual connection to what I'm trying to do helps me get over the hump. I think music uh, is a good place to go when you're needing that little extra charge to to invest energy into whatever you're struggling with. I have the uh, pleasure now of working with a very, very multi-talented artist. His name is Oheni Savant, O-H-E-N-E, Savant. And so I have other projects and I'm doing a lot of my Growing knowledge and appreciation for hip-hop, for newer music, comes from the, the deep dialogue that I have uh, with Oheni. He's an independent artist, and he's been around for some time. He's had a major impact, but he insists on being independent, working with all the tools that are available to artists to distribute and move their art without the kind of dependence on gatekeepers. So that's been a very uh, important part of my music education as I kind of moved to start putting music out myself. Right. The, the, the One of the questions that I, I wanted to ask you before we went to break was getting back to the tenor of music reflecting the social environment. I've been listening to some trap music because mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, what's this trap music? And, but I'm enjoying it. Yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying yeah. it. And I know one of the questions I had asked you, why is it hard for us to accept this new music that, that we hear? And this new music that we hear, is it reflective of the social environment? Because we got Black Lives Matter. We still mm -hmm. have mass incarceration. We still have police brutality. Sure. And I don't hear, I don't hear, hear that strength 
of those platforms in the music. In the mm. music, it may, maybe it's what I'm selecting, or maybe what's right. being on the air. Sure, is the the party get high um, and talking about the female anatomy. Right, there is definitely uh, a leaning in, in in those directions when dealing with popular music. Now, one issue that we have is there's so many ways that the consumption of music is more privatized and tailored to individual tastes now than ever before. So we have the decline, for instance, of radio as the dominant kind of arbiter of what we hear and what we don't. So you, just like they talk about people getting their news from the sources that they want, people get their music from their own sources. A lot of it is using social media digital media, there are a lot more artists that have smaller niches that actually have a sustained presence in ear space in ways that wasn't always available to them. So this is a moment that is very rich in opportunities for a lot of different voices to have a place. But you are pointing to something that I think is real, and that is the power of big industry, multinational corporations, uh, what people call the machine, if you will, and they tend to uh, try to replicate what is working, and sometimes that's why certain things become popular, and after a while you get tired of it, right, especially when they have so much influence on, on um, getting music out and just surrounding you with it. With trap music, it's it's a new style of music, and I think, you know, if you go back to the way people felt going back to the 1930s and 40s with the electrification of instruments. You know, it's very hard to have a sensibility that allows one to appreciate the voice of another generation and the technology of another generation. There's some rare exceptions. Like people like Quincy Jones, for instance, is the exception rather than the rule. Big band jazz leader, you know, music producer, work with everybody, and pretty much can hear uh, the magnetism of any music form, even with technologies that he's not really um, well-versed in utilizing. That's a special kind of ear. So trap music definitely comes out of a social context. I mean, it's talk, it, even its sort of self-designation is a reference to you know, drug houses and uh, certain it, certain kind of context, even if many of the artists affiliated with it don't necessarily uh, have that kind of relationship. There's a big discussion. I had an interview with Nelson George, and he said he tried to put everything into hip-hop. And he said maybe hip-hop is its own thing. And just because you have rap doesn't mean it's hip-hop. It could be trap music. It could just be trap music. And I said, wow, that's that's an interesting take. But these kinds of debates over how to categorize one style or another, how one style is a superior or regarded as a uh, lower level of creativity. We've been having those debates as long as black folks have been, you know, involved in popular culture and the creation of music as a commodity. So I think that that's just the latest chapter. I tend to lean towards being comfortable with sounds that are unfamiliar to me and trying to appreciate 
what is it that the music does to people? So when I look at a song that has a trap beat and I look at how people move to it, how does it touch them? That for me is what's special about any kind of popular music is to look at those kinds of connections between sound, the body, the heart, and the mind. I do enjoy trap music, but I like I like all kinds of music. I like all types of music. But you don't like this. You don't like the lyrical limitations that of oh, it sounded to me like you. But I don't. Think, I want a story. But here's the thing: I don't think that the story is finished yet as to what kind of sound can deliver conscious and elevating lyrics. So we may not have heard the trap artist that's talking and inspiring people to act in ways uh, to fight for social justice. It doesn't mean it's not there and doesn't mean it's not possible simply because we haven't heard it. But we definitely have um, access to micro audiences and artists that have niches in ways that might make that more possible now than ever. So it's coming. It's, it's, so I, we're so we're talking about we're at the infancy of a trap music right now, basically. Who knows? I mean, it's hard to predict. It might morph into something totally different, right? I mean, I remember when Rapper's Delight came out, I could not understand how you can make a record talking on top of Sheik's music. That was not a part of our experience in upstate New York. We still had bands in upstate New York. I thought that song at best was a one-off, like a novelty. Okay, now let's get back to, you know, Cameo. Let's get back to Slave now, right? Right. That didn't happen. Right. You look so, at the world. music was coming from, from New York City. That's right. 400 miles away from where I grew up. Right, right. And, and not necessarily a working class family that can go and buy the instruments, but they're, they're looking at their, their surroundings and listening to to the DJs who were playing the music, so maybe there wasn't any place culturally to go and listen to bands like it is in upstate well, New York. Well, I, I don't have any problem with whatever whatever those social conditions are, they were, that created mm-hmm. it, but they weren't uniform. Okay. So in upstate New York, that sounded like something that was going to be, and there are a lot of people in the, this is one of the blind spots of a lot of the older music industry executives in black music didn't see it necessarily either as something that was going to become a whole genre that would transform not just cultural life, social life, music. I mean, hip hop is everywhere, right? Yes. It's so much bigger than what I thought it was. And I had many miscues in my analysis of it, but, who would have known? You can't. You just right. don't know what. And, and then so we probably have miscues about trap music. We have miscues <laughs> about a lot of things, you know, in the moment that we're experiencing them. So I, with that, having learned the first time from that, I don't want to make that mistake again. Right. Well, Dr. Scott, we can easily continue on and g- give out your contact information sure. again, please. Yes, I'm. Uh, you can reach me uh, via email at dr. Scott Brown. Scott Brown is spelled one T S C O T B R O W N at gmail.com. Dr. Scott Brown at gmail.com. If you look on social media for Scott Tronics, S C O T R O N I X X, you should be led to uh, the first single, 
Last Man that I just released, and also a single I collaborated with Kalamu Yasalam, uh, the veteran black arts poet that I worked with as well. And I was able to get a sneak peek at the video for Last Man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's hot, you guys. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being on the show with me today. My pleasure. Yes. Until and, next time. Yes, it most definitely will be a next time because I still want to talk more about music. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you to my conversation piece guest, Dr. Scott Brown, UCLA African-American Studies and History Professor who is a musician and a funk fanatic with his song, Last Man, that you can find on Scott Tronics, his music production company that emits a love funk pheromone in the inner ear, mind, and spirit. Find his music at scotttronics.bandcamp.com. That's Scott, S-C-O-T, Tronics, O-R-N-I-X-X, dot bandcamp.com. And his book on Discourse on Africana Studies and Fighting for Us. You can find that at Amazon. Email him at doctor at dr.scottbrown at gmail.com. Thank you to Leslie Rafford, the visionary behind RGLA, Adam Rice, program director, Joseph Tucker, engineer, and my producer, Michael Washington of MWASO for the opening and closing theme song. And always you, our RGLA family. Reach us on Radio Justice Facebook. Give us some love. Give us some likes as you listen to us worldwide anytime at RadioJustice.org. I'm Angela Birdsong. And once again, thank you for allowing me to share this special experience of conversation piece on Radio Justice LA morning wake up call with you. Remember to be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be brave. Be courageous. And let all that you do be done with love.